Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Mike Foyer on Parashat Tazria Metzora. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem is sponsored by Emily Simon in honor of the loving memory of her mother, Devorah Bela Bat Herschel Vachasha Gittel. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting us online at elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rav Mike Foyer. Tazria Mitzora, the messiness of life. So I know that we're already deep into the book of Vayikra, but it's worth it to me, before I try to dive into our Parsha, to note that in order to learn this book properly, we really need to learn a whole new language. Because Bigadol, in general, I think the focus of the Sefer is on the state of Kedusha one needs in order to do a Voda, and how Tuma and Tahara bound and negotiate this. Now, you may notice that there were a number of words in there, four in fact, that I didn't bother to translate. And that's because these are words which carry weight in their original Weight, which is so large that it can be intimidating, and that's to speak nothing of the baggage that their translated versions hold. Holiness, service, purity, and impurity. And that's why any attempt to build a common language around them really is a lifetime endeavor. What I can hope to do in one podcast is really just raise the question and maybe throw out a few thoughts. So a direct discussion of Kedusha, of this idea of holiness, sanctity, that belongs to other parashiyot. Of course, most notably Kedoshim to you. I'll see you there, Bezrat Hashem. For now, Tazria Mitzora gives us a unique opportunity to explore the ideas of Tameh and Tahor, of the impure and the pure. In order to do this, in general, when I try to explore a word, I like to start where its first usage lies. And in the case of Tameh, it's not a particularly comfortable situation. If you look back in the book of Breshit in Genesis, in chapter 34, you'll find there the story of Dina, the daughter of Yaakov, and her rape by Shechem. Now, that act is not just one of sexual violence. And if you haven't read the story, it's one which needs to be faced there. In the narrative, it also constitutes a change of status, let's call it, in the eyes of Dina's father and brothers. If you look there, it says in Breshi 34.5, Yaakov Shama, Dina And he says that Yaakov heard that, that Shem had defiled, it's often translated, his daughter. It doesn't actually speak of the act in this context, that there's been somehow a change of status represented by this idea of Tame. And that term is one with such profound implications that if you look a little bit further, it serves as, in part at least, a justification for the, let's call it, deceptive nature of the revenge that the brothers took when they came home and found out what had happened to their sister. And as it says only a few psukim later in 3413, Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor, deceptively. And they spoke, right? And the simple reading is they answered deceptively and they spoke. And it refers back to these people who had, once again, defiled Dina, their sister. But if you look in the translation, and certainly in the Midrash that Rashi brings there, you can really read it as Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor, speaking with guile because he had defiled their sister Dina. 
In the patriarchal world, and I mean that in the most literal sense, the abuse to which Dina had been subjected wasn't just a personal moment of suffering or an affront. It made her, in the eyes of her family, unfit for marriage. And that idea of marriage itself will evolve from this point on and even before in the thought of Am Yisrael as a mode in general for right relationship. And that's what interests me right now, leaving aside the power of the story in and of itself, is because this usage is the only usage I'm aware of in the book of Breshit, and the, con the concept disappears basically until it reemerges in Vayikra. And in our picture of Vayikra, we're trying to understand this idea of Tuma. Now, one aspect of a voda of divine service is, an exp is expressed by standing in right relationship to God. And the state of tuma, of impurity, whatever its source, whatever its consequences within the specific question at hand, is something which prevents one from entering into that relationship, right? Eating food or entering a place or touching a vessel. You can't do the service if you're tame, meaning you can't enter into that moment of relationship. And just as Dina had suffered through her experience a change of status, which in the eyes of her brothers and fathers made her no longer fit for that ultimate act of relationship, of marriage, so too it teaches us that Tuma, throughout the book of Ayikra, is anything which prevents standing in right relationship. Now, just for some sense of symmetry, let's touch the first usage of the word Tahor, and you find that actually in Reshit 7.2. It says there, at the end of the story, sorry, at the, at the beginning of the story of Noah, right, telling Noah to bring, of course, two by two, the animals, but seven by seven of the clean ones, right? The Pasuk in 7.2 says, of every clean animal, you shall take seven pairs. And right, and the two by two was only ones which are low tahora. There it doesn't say tame. They're just simply not pure. Now, what can this teach us about an essential idea of tahara? Well, if you look at Rashi on that verse, he gives the following explanation. He says, Torah Torah right? What does Torah mean? It means those which will in the future be Torah Israel. They'll be pure to Am Yisrael. Now, on one level, he's addressing the first question that every sort of like observant reader or, or you know, my kids love to ask is like, wait a minute. How could Noah have any distinction of what was Tahor and what was not? To assert that something is clean is to assume some sort of system of knowledge. And that's why Rashi says that it comes to teach us that Noah studied Torah. But on a deeper level, it teaches us even further that any such system has to have a standard of measure. What is clean and what is unclean? What defines the distinction between the two? And that's why Rashi continues and says, seven by seven, why were there so many of the pure? In order that he might offer some of them as a sacrifice when leaving the ark. And that teaches us that the state of tahara, of being tahor, means that we're fit for sacrifice. Because avoda, this divine service that Vayikra revolves around, has another expression, aside from standing in right relationship, it's the elevation of creation through offering, and yes, sacrifice. That which is tahor, here in this first usage, is that which is fit for this specific service. And that which is tameh, by implication at least, though it doesn't say it in the verse in Breshit, is not and the Noah story teaches us about categories of objects, this idea that certain things can be tahor, and by implication, tameh. But Dina's suffering teaches us that, at least when it comes to humanity, that tam, tuma and tahar, these can be st 
states, statuses which can change. And that is what serves as a bridge back to our Parsha, now that we've done a little bit of groundwork. Because there are endless usages of the terms Tame and Tahor in this double Parsha, each with their own nuance, at least in potentia if you explore it far enough. And I want to take just two cases, one from each Parsha, and hopefully through them illuminate one small aspect in each term that we've just begun to sketch out. Now Tazria opens with a new category of Tuma, of impurity. It says there in Vayikra 12.2, when a woman at childbirth bears a male child, right? she shall be unclean for seven days, unclean as at the time of her menstrual cycle. Now, what follows in this parsha, which I believe is blocked out as chapter 12, is a concise but complete description of an event, birth, which first causes impurity, has certain consequences within uh, status, within society, in places you can go, etc., and then lines out a path to regain in, regaining purity. And because of its actually concise but complete nature, it's worth studying in detail. But we're in a big-picture discussion right now. And for the sake of that, I would simply point out that this is an impurity which is an unavoidable product of life, not just of life in general, but of really what the Torah sees as the most desirable of all events, the bringing into the world of new life. And much ink has been spilled at this point, at what Tumat Leda, the impurity that flows from birth, can teach us about the very fine line dividing life and death. How as the mother approaches death, childbirth being one of the leading causes of death, certainly in the ancient world, as a mother approaches death and the baby life, birth actually becomes an embodiment of how the two are so inextricably intertwined. That's not where I'm going right now. All I would add to that massive discourse is that it teaches us that transition into Tuma, becoming impure, as we say, is not intrinsically a mistake or a failure or a result of our flaws, but it's a part of the human condition. Now, even that isn't necessarily positive. You could see it in a negative light, bring in Adam and Chava and their failure in the garden. We could go down that rabbit hole if you want. But right now, I'm inclined to say that it simply teaches us an essential truth. Life is a messy process by definition. It's imperfect and impure, desirable, worthwhile, even potentially noble, but messy and therefore impure. And of course, if Tuma is part of the human condition, this impurity, then Tahara, the potential for being pure, must be as well. I'm going to leave to your own reflections the question of what the attainment of this sort of natural Tahara might look like, a parallel process to the life-death nexus of birth that produces Tumat Leda. But I think you'll agree with me, whether you pursue that reflection or not, that there's no question that life only gets messier after birth. And that's what I think our next example comes to illuminate. Now, there was Tazuya and Mitzora, and in, it's a double Parsha, but in fairness, the Mitzora that gives their name to the second Parsha of this twofer appears immediately after the birthing mother in the first Parsha itself. If you look in Vayikra 13.2, it says, right, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling, rash, discoloration, etc., and it develops into, ooh, I love this translation, scaly affection on the skin of his body, right? And he has to go to the priest and tell him, and there's a whole process. What follows, in fact, is a long and intensely detailed description of various states of impurity on the body, on the hair, on the house, on the clothing, etc., and, and the methods of 
purification. There's much to be learned from every single one of the details. But I'm in a big picture mode right now. I'm looking to understand a little bit about the meaning of Tuma. Because Tuma Leida, at least in the way I've presented it, helps illustrate that essential truth that life is a messy process. Something which will hopefully allow us to accept the impure along with the impure as part of life and not necessarily indicative of a failure. And it might even offer a bit of hope that the journey toward Tahara is as much built in as the descent toward Tuma is as well. Now the Masora, on the other hand, can come to teach us a whole different level of life's messiness, and therefore, at least potentially, of its purity. Now, it's worth noting, when you read the Parsha, that with all the exhaustive treatment of what such a tzara'at might look like, how it might be treated in various situations, the cause of this mysterious biblical malady is never identified. The discussion revolves around identification and treatment so to speak. Now, and that might come as a surprise to some, especially those who've learned a bit and have been trained, therefore, through their education to associate Sara'at with Lashon Hara, with speaking ill of others. And there's an emphasis there, right? The Torah repeats in Devarim 24.9 to remember the treatment that God gave to Miriam after she speaks about Moshe. It's not an unfounded observation. In fact, the Midrash in Devarim Rabbah says in the name of Rabbi Hanina that Sara'at comes only on count of Lashon Hara. And they bring the proof text from there in Dvarim. But the very sages who taught so many of us to identify Lashon Hara as the cause of Tzarat, which again isn't in the text, even though over in Dvarim there's a in Bamidbar and Dvarim there's a strong case to be made. Nonetheless, those very sages also provide a number of other causes for Tzarat as well. Seven, in fact. If you look in the Gemara and Erchin, there are seven causes for this biblical leprosy, as they call it, right? Malicious speech, right? Bloodshed, oaths taken in vain, forbidden sexual relations, arrogance, theft, stinginess. Now, what does such a multitude of causes of Tumat Mitzorah, the impurity of the Mitzorah, and causes, by the way, which range from the profound to the petty, I mean, murder and stinginess in the same list, what does that teach us about the nature of Tuma in general? Now, before I can answer, I have to make an assertion. The question of why Tarat no longer exists in our day is an exploration unto itself, and there's a lot, a lot said about it. For now, like I said, I'm going to assert that just as Rashi brings from the Midrash later in, in Parsha Mitzorah that Tarat Abayit, the the plague which appears on the walls of your house was actually a blessing. He says it was a blessing because it reveals a treasure, a hidden treasure beneath the wall which had been you know, tucked away there by the seven nations before Am Yisrael came in. And if you hadn't had the supposed trouble of the stain on your wall, you never would have gone digging and found it. So too, Tarat of the flesh was a blessing that revealed something within. It was in fact the inner flaw which is revealed, according to the sages, seven different causes by revealing those inner flaws in an outer form, it forces everyone to confront their behavior, right? And now this type of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I want to say exposition. It's not a, this type of exposure of, of, of a revelation of the inner in an outer form is the type of divine attention that we might call miraculous and it's not just a random miracle or one meant to push history forward. Its purpose is to refine our behavior. And that level of miraculous divine attention is one which we no longer merit. 
Because only when we as a people, together as a whole, we're living in a society built so wholly around a voda, this service, which is the central goal of the book of Ayikra, when our structures and general behaviors reflect a deep and wide commitment to those two aspects of standing in right relationship with God and humanity, as well as the elevation of creation at every opportunity, it's only then that our inner blemishes will, will merit that they be externalized as outward signs. In, in the same way that Rashi says we'll discover treasures hidden in the walls of our homes, so too we'll discover the treasure that is hidden in our flaws being exposed so that we're forced to fix them. And in that sense, the Tuma of the Mitzorah actually builds on the message that I derive from Tumat Leda of the impurity of birth. If the impurity of birth teaches us that life is messy, then the impurity of the Mitzorah comes to teach us that even if we clean ourselves scrupulously and build our lives around what we know is right, we'll see that on a moral, emotional, spiritual level, life is way messier, at least in potential, than we realize. And that possibility that we have of a deeper refinement is paired with the potential for new aspects of Tuma. Now, when we merit to see that, it's a true treasure because then the level of refinement that we can bring out through being exposed to our own impurities offers a tahara which can lead to a service, a right relationship and an elevation of creation of which really at this point we can only dream. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. You can also subscribe to any of our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week to listen to Rabbi Michael Hatton as he discusses Parashat Acharemot Kedoshim. Thanks for listening.